Hey everybody, I am here today with Eric Martinez. Eric is the sales director at Sundance Payment Solutions. How are you doing today, Eric? I'm well, James. How about yourself? I am doing great. Couldn't be better. Uh, so, Eric, I would love to hear your story. Uh, how in the world did you get into the payments industry? How did you end up at Sundance Payments? For, yeah, first and foremost, appreciate you having me on. Big fan. Love love, love your work. Thanks. Um, wow. See, I got in the industry completely by accident, to be honest with you. I was uh, actually uh, transferring. I was about to go to college in Southern California. I live in Northern California at the time. And I was looking for a flexible job. I was relocating. That didn't know anybody in Southern California. So found an ad at the time. I think it was Hot Jobs. Okay. And replied to the ad about merchant services, got a phone call from the gentleman that being my director for 12 years, which I owe my career to to this day. Very grateful I met him. And he sent me out of walking key, had a conversation, explained how the industry worked, and um, kind of gave me a quick little breakdown. Sent me out of welcome kit. I went through some training. Um, kind of, I think most of us kind of uh, know how this works. Is <laughs> it's about they're going out there and getting some statements and the men's do a cost comparison. Sure. I'm like, okay, so I basically we help businesses reduce their costs. And I got to go out there and get statements. Okay, I can do that. Right. And went out there that day and uh, got two statements. And um, kind of just little by little, and uh, just kind of taught myself the industry. Sure. I uh, took a. Uh, Took a took a liking to the industry. The industry kind of, I think, chose me more than anything else. I had no idea it existed, right? And just stayed persistent while I was going to school. Put me through college. Uh, at that point, um, the my mentor had sold that sold his processing company. Then I moved up to Northern California to work for another company that we eventually was with. The, uh, was one of the funding directors of sales at that company in Northern California that was later later sold to Tesis. Sure. And. Um, Dabbed around the business a little bit, got uh, wrote, got back in the field, wrote some business, got, got a book of business going, uh, worked with a startup out of another startup out of Northern California selling um, e-commerce solutions. And I was looking to get out of California, to be honest with you. Sure. Uh, and actually, this opportunity kind of came around the perfect time. I was looking for someone who could take care of myself as well as people I knew within the industry because I'm well-connected in the industry. And sure. um, Sundance Payments actually reached out to me. The president reached out to Eric Barth. He reached out to me and um, had a good conversation. They flew me out here to, to Fort Worth. I work at the Fort Worth downtown Fort Worth office. Uh, got a tour of the whole place. Uh, got to talk to all upper management here. And um, like the way they do business, felt kind of felt felt at home when I first got here. To be honest with you, and sure. um, I mean, I'm I'm happy to be here. Happy to be part of the organization. Helping helping build out Sundance Payments. And uh, what what I found out was. What kind of resonated with me? It's I could tell they really they wanted me here. Um, they right. valued my experience, um, and I felt at home. It felt like a, it's like a we were a really really tight knit family as far as the way uh, the way we work here with the other directors here in the office as well. Sure. And sure. Uh, one of the common things that kept coming up is we wanted, and which I really believe in is transparency. Um, keeping keeping uh, myself happy as well as really taking care of our agent partners and since uh, and that's really kind of the way we do business so that's really kind of what got me here to Fort Worth and it's really customer centric and agent centric and really kind of helping the partners build out their business and working with entrepreneurs and sure uh, it's a uh, it's a fun ride a lot, a lot of long hours <laughs> a lot of hard work but right um it's uh it's it's fun yeah love yeah, it yeah well and it's it's hard not to feel at home in uh, fort worth i'm i'm actually uh, uh a big fan as well i love that area and uh, just a just a great uh, great little town there so 
So Eric yeah, has, Eric, you've got a lot of experience that I, I really want to try to get as much of it out of you as I can today um, for our listeners, because your experience uh, really, you know, you have a lot of experience working with experienced agents and kind of these veteran agents in our industry that have gone through a lot of challenges over the last 10 years, ups and downs, uh, you know, acquisitions mm -hmm. and mergers and changes in the industry and all this stuff. And so what I'd love to do is I'd love to start out by just kind of getting your thoughts on what are these challenges? Like you talk to a lot of experienced reps in your recruiting uh, activities and, and just trying to help people in the industry. What are you hearing mm -hmm. from experienced bank card reps today? They're independent agents. What are the big challenges that they're facing today? Some of the things that I'm hearing that concern me uh, and actually concern myself because I start off as an agent as well is sure. with, with all the consolidation occurring, it seems like there's less homes, big more. Obviously, the supervisors are becoming even bigger. Right. Uh, it seems like there's less hands-on service. Uh, somebody calls. I've one of the one of my partners actually. I, I kind of made me feel nice and fuzzy the other day. Called me and said, Eric, you know what? When I when I call you. The thing I love about working with you, when I call you, you actually pick up the phone. I'm past partner. <laughs> what a shocker. <laughs> I, I called. Uh, I get a voicemail. Right. I send a text. Don't get a phone call for a week. I'm right. um, trying to get an issue fixed. Uh, my merchant has not – nobody's calling back my merchant. I can't get a hold of anybody in tech. They're saying I can't talk to anybody in underwriting. Uh, they're kind of off limits. So um, those are some of the things I hear from merchants from, – from, from agents, excuse me. Right. Um, and it's frustrating for them just for the simple fact they're having their clients that are unhappy they're right. hearing it from them and they can't get the support that they need so we take more of a, a partner-centric approach where we will listen to what the partner's needs are what their expectations are and we said we said what the expe expectations are going to be and we try to deliver we don't try to over promise anything right. if we're, we're not here to make promises oh we're going to promise you the world uh we'll tell you as far as what we can do what we can't do so uh, we want to give them the support that they need, but more importantly, make sure, hey, I'm here to help out. Let me right. know what the problem is and how can we help. Yeah, I really like that. And I think, Eric, this brings up a really good point that I, I wanted to talk about with you on the podcast here because, you know, I think our industry, more and more, they're treating the independent agent as a business, as a sole proprietorship of one and, you know, the idea being all these individual reps want is a higher split. If we could give them a higher split and say, we're going to do nothing for you, but we're going to pay you a little bit more money, that that's the best deal. And I think actually, unfortunately, a lot of individual agents who don't have a team, who don't have an assistant, who don't have an IT person, they're falling into that trap of the only thing that matters is the split where in reality, the biggest, correct me if I'm wrong here, but what I've seen is it seems like the biggest differentiator between the top reps in the industry as far as earnings is not their residual split. It's the number of sales that they make, right? And so, like, you can't make a lot of sales when you're getting 17 calls a day from upset customers who are expecting you to do things Absolutely. that you're not really positioned well to do. So there's kind of that balance, isn't there, between, like, what am I going to get paid versus what kind of support am I going to get? Like, is, is have you had that kind of similar experience? Absolutely. I mean, when you're building out an organization, there's a lot of investment that goes into building out the infrastructure to support the organization. Right. So I think one of the things that I hear from agents is they want a bigger split, which I, it's completely understandable. And we customize and we listen to what people are, people, what people, what, what people want. Right. Um, but they also have to understand that, Hey, these, there's costs involved, but we want to make sure, Hey, these things that are 
what's the use bringing in 20 deals a month if you're going to be getting have half of them close out because they can't get the support that you need? You're basically going backwards or you're basically running on a treadmill, not right. going anywhere. Right. So um, so building up, having, if not, if you have the money to build out the infrastructure to have your own customer support team or have a couple of reps, that's obviously going to help. Obviously, uh, it, it's important to have because you want to give the support. But we do hear that, and that's kind of where we're one, one thing that we're very proud of is on the back end side, we do have our 24 7 customer support. Obviously, we have individual departments that handle specific needs, sure. uh, which obviously are getting a lot of value on the back end side to obviously make their life easier. Handling the customer service issue, but more importantly, gives them time to go out there and acquire more accounts and continue growing the portfolio. Sure. Yeah. And so, I, yeah, I, I agree with you. I think it's interesting because the, the big downside, too, is it's like for these for these experienced reps, you know, the thing about them that I think a lot of them don't really value correctly is how valuable their skill is to go out there and talk to a mm-hmm. business owner and sell them like one hour of their prospecting time is worth an enormous amount of money. And so it's like, Every hour you spend dealing with, and again, you know, maybe your business model is predicated on personal service and lots of like going back and all that. That's fine. But if really you're honest and as an individual agent and you're like, you know, really my business model is predicated on me making sales, then it seems like every hour that you would spend on support as an individual agent, that's an hour that you could have spent prospecting. And again, as long as you have confidence in the company you're with to provide that support, I mean, that gives you a a huge edge, a huge advantage in your market to be able to get out there and just do more of what you're actually really good at, right? Absolutely. I mean, if you have a partner in the back end side that can help support and has the same vision and has the same goals as you as far as providing support, I mean, it's a win-win for both people. Sure. Um, more revenue coming in, not just for the individual person, but as well as the company because we're retaining the merchants. Right, right. Good. Okay, so so let's transition a little bit and let's start diving into some really good detailed information here about kind of how we build out this team of experienced reps, you know, is it even the right thing to do? What are some of the challenges? So let's start at the beginning with recruiting. Um, you know, recruiting experienced reps, it's gotten a lot more challenging. Um, I think especially over the last five years with, like we talked about, a lot of competition, a lot of mergers and acquisitions, mm-hmm. and and maybe not trusting as much and things like that. What are some of the things that you're doing to attract experienced reps? What are What are you offering or what are you doing? What's that process look like to get a new person in the door? Well, it's uh, not a magical process. We really take a hands-on approach here. We we really focus on trying to build a relationship. When we're when I'm working with an experienced rep, it doesn't really. I mean, it's typically a process. It's probably going to take a, some a couple conversations. It might take months. Sure. Um, obviously, because we want to make sure it's a good fit on both sides. Right. Um, we might. We don't have. It's not a one-size-fits-all type of industry. Depending on what solutions you're or verticals you're 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 working with, we we play well in some vertical markets where we might not play as well as in different vertical markets as well. So it just depends on kind of what the partner's looking for and kind of what their business plan is. Sure. But we really take a hands-on approach to and really kind of uh, set the expectations, um, focus kind of what our strong points are. Uh, and really kind of listen to what they're looking for, what their expectations are uh, on us as a partner. Because I don't look at it as just their agents. I look at them as a, we want a, a true business partnership and we want to know feedback and where we can improve on. So we're definitely willing to mold our our model based on what they're looking for as for a service, uh, ongoing support, um, what they're how, how they're going out there and they're getting their clients. So we really listen to what they are and really kind of tailor a program um, 
with what they're used to. And not everything's going to be completely the same, but we'll do everything we can to help make them feel comfortable to a process that they're used to having currently with their current ISOs or current partners. Um, and really try to win win their win the relationship really kind of one person at a time, little by little. And, and uh, if we do our job, the, uh, we're, we're, we're seeing and we get a lot of uh, referrals coming in from our partners. And that kind of speaks volume right. where we take care of them. People know other people, the business. So sure. we must be doing something right because sure. uh, we get a lot of referrals um, from people um, um, from that are right in business with us currently. Yeah. So you, you mentioned a couple things I really want to dive into here. So the first thing and kind of a theme I've heard you say now a couple times already in this short interview here is customize, uh, you know, adjust, you know, things like that. So am I correct in hearing what you're saying is that, you know, while with a green agent, if you're recruiting somebody that has no industry experience, you know, you really want kind of a set process, you know, day one, you go do this, day two, you do mm-hmm. this, you know, set compensation, everything kind of very structured. But it sounds like mm-hmm. what you're saying is if you're going after the experienced reps, you might want to be in a position to customize your solution a little bit more, customize your compensation a little bit more, depending on what that experienced rep is used to in the value proposition they're looking for. Is, is that kind of what you're saying? Uh, absolutely, you are completely correct. Yeah, so that's that, and that's a big one. I think a lot of people don't understand that. It's like, you know, if you want to build like the most structured ISO where every rep does exactly what you want them to do every day, um, that's not going out of recruiting experience bank card reps, right? Like that's green agents versus you need to be in a position where you can customize, where you can, you know, have varying different types of compensation, different value propositions, different levels of support if you want to go after the, the small ISO or the experienced rep, right? Exactly. I mean, there's there's people that focus on the mom and pop shops. I mean, which are great. Um, but we have partners that are focused on e-commerce. We have some partners that hey, they're they're software developers. They want to add this as a value add solution to what they're doing. So, I mean, payments is just as a whole. It's uh, it's the opportunity is great and it's com- yeah. completely changing. Sure. But I mean, it has really a place in practically every single aspect of what we do now, especially with ISVs and things of that nature, software developers. I mean, uh, just depending on kind of what what their model, what their goals are. And that's what we really, I think where we're kind of separating ourselves and what we're having success is we're trying to figure out kind of what their goals are and helping them achieve what their goals are because it's a win-win position at that point. Right. Well, and I think um, one of the things you brought up too that I hadn't even thought about it, but it's such a, such a good point. Haven't you seen that the, the small ISO and the experienced rep and kind of that, that segment of the market, it seems like they've started to go more vertical based where you still have, of course, that general rep that goes out there and just sells all the businesses in their area. But it seems like there's a mm-hmm. lot of partners that, like you said, it's like, you know, hey, I sell large e-commerce retailers or I sell fine dining restaurants that have multiple locations or whatever. Like, are you seeing that more and more where they kind of need mm-hmm. special support for their vertical or whatever that they're going after? Absolutely. Absolutely. I work with partners that their their focus is strictly um, level two, level three processing. Um, so we actually we, we use a, a product that I can actually specialize and help them achieve, obviously, get, getting the interchange optimization they need. We have partners that, hey, they want to just focus on just selling mobile solutions, uh, internet, internet, internet. I mean, yeah. So, I mean, we, we really want to just try to see if we have the right solution for what they're looking for, but yeah, it's, uh, I think that's actually probably because be, it's a really good successful, it's, it's successful for them, for the agent to do that just for the simple reason they could, if they specialize in a specific vertical, right. um, I think they could become more of a 
obviously expert in that business and develop right. a reputation right. and uh, it's more in a greater book of business and better stickiness in the long term. Yeah. Cool. Okay. So, so let's take it a step further. So you, you recruit somebody, whether they're a referral or whether you customize a solution for them, whatever it took. So you get this person in the door. Um, I know from my past experience, having an ISO and recruiting experienced reps that, you know, getting somebody to say yes and complete your agreement is one thing. And that's a good, that's step one, but that doesn't mean that you have a sale yet or that you have a producer yet. Right. So Talk to us about those Correct. first, right? Those first like one to three deals. Like, how do you actually get this experienced rep that has other options available to them? They're not desperate for you. They've got other companies that they they like working with. They've now come over to you. How do you actually get them to switch and write that deal with you the next time? Well, I mean, it kind of comes down once again to the those those personal conversations we have and the relationship that we built with our partners. Because when it comes down to it, it's all based off of relationships, sure. and that's the way we really kind of see things, the way I see things as well. Um, but we take that hands-on approach to each agent's needs, uh, figure out the solution that they want, and we really will handhold them through the whole process, depending on just kind of get to know the merchant, size the merchant, um, what the solution they're looking for, uh, help them with the paperwork, make sure it's not just getting the deal boarded, but making sure we underwrite it correctly. I hear a lot of horror stories where there's uh, there's their, their ISOs rushing to get the deal approved. Um, but then the underwriting requirements, they're lowering the high tickets. Merchant calls sure. in a week later because they ran a $10,000 transaction. So we really want to take our time to really kind of know who we're doing business with, and, and we want to make sure we underwrite it correctly to have that nice customer have the good customer experience in the back end side and walk them through the whole, uh, walking through the whole application, uh, helping them obviously if we need to get on the phone and help them close the sale or explain our products or just helping them understand kind of the whole flow of how the installation is going to go, customer service is going to go. So right. we really kind of get hands on, really kind of roll up our sleeves, get dirty with the agent, figure out okay what's this need because every every merchant's different. Right. So depending on what their expectations are, because they set expectations not just for the partner but for us. Right. So whatever they're looking for, hey. We got to make sure, hey, sure. we can deliver on the promises that they're asking for, and really set a realistic expectation for them versus saying, "Hey, look, yeah, I can do this, I can do right. that." We can do anything you want. <laughs> we all know it happens in the industry, sure. and all of a sudden, a week later, merch is not happy, funds are on hold, agents not happy, and we don't want to have that. I mean, we right. want to really kind of right. be upfront. Be honest, set the expectation, not overpromise and overdeliver. Uh, we want to overpromise and overdeliver, but we at the same time we don't want to shoot ourselves in the foot saying we could do something we can't. So we're realistic about the whole situation. We're, I think, uh, on the back end side. One thing I'm, I've, I've been in the business for a while. I mean, you know, I take a look at high tickets, types of business verticals. Um, I'm, I'm not an underwriter, but I'm so versed as far as what they're sure. looking for. Sure. I can make sure we can help guide them and the merchant to make sure we get everything underwritten correctly because. There's always horror stories. The last thing we want is yeah, you don't want that I think any agent and, wants right. to get that phone call from the merchant saying, hey, I have a $15,000 transaction that's hold. I want my money. Right, exactly. So we want to try to avoid that. Sure. And you know what? It's, it's really interesting because something you said kind of triggered me thinking about my consulting practice where one, you know, ironic thing about this industry is that when you talk to people that are recruiting green agents, meaning no industry experience, you know, they fully understand and they expect to provide all kinds of support and service to help that green agent get those first 10 to 20 deals through the door. Like, you know, obviously this person has no idea how to fill out a merchant agreement or or how to log into the portal and how to do all these things. So it's like they're ready for that. But then what I see that's so interesting 
is people will recruit experienced bank card reps that have made 100 sales for somebody else or 30 sales. And they basically give the experienced agent zero support. Like they bring them on board and they're like, cool, well, you already know what you're doing. So go do it. And what they miss is obviously I don't care how experienced the agent is. They don't understand your paperwork. They don't know how to get to the information in your portal. They don't know what solutions you offer. Right. So isn't there kind of like, in my opinion, it's like the first one to three sales, whether they're green or experienced, you got to do some serious handholding is what it sounds like you're saying. Right. Absolutely. I mean, I, I take it above that. I mean, not just the first three deals. I mean, I, I'm really hands-on making sure merchants are processing. I mean, I for all my partners, I, I'm very detail-oriented. So I want to make sure, hey, the merchants are actually processing. They're happy. I want communication. Sure. Uh, I, taking time to do a webinar, to walk them through the portal, show them our, as far as how to activate notifications through our portal, where to find the proper paperwork. Uh, I mean, life itself, it's it's a process of always learning. Sure. So I've been in the industry 18 years. I'm learning something new every single day, and right. I'll never know everything because it's constantly changing. Right. Uh, and I keep, I take that type of approach um, talking to whether it's a brand-new person or an experienced person because everybody's processes are different. Everybody has different underwriting process, different guidelines, um, what they'll take, what they won't take, what type of terminal it is, what's compatible, all the different applications. I mean there's so many just different nuances. Right. So really kind of really being granular so they can really learn that specific product and, and just feel comfortable with us because – and things change. I mean you know how it is in the industry. I mean banks are risk adverse, so there might be t- changes in underwriting over time. Um, so we just try to stay on top of it as much as we can. And it's always every conversation I have with my partners, uh, it's not just, Hey, this where the deals are at. It's like, it's, teach them about new products, new solutions, right. where they're missing out sure. uh, on different opportunities and just try to expand the horizon. Cause there's all, there's different solutions for different types of merchants. And we just want to make sure they're educated enough to, if they notice an opportunity where they might need a specific solution, um, to uh, capitalize on that opportunity right. and, and make another sale. So right. it's a constant education. It's a constant grind, but I mean, it's a fun process because right. at that point, at the same time, I keep myself sharp and, and right. I always try to keep myself up to date as far as all the different things that are out there. And sure. um, I, I love the industry. I'm a student of it. So it's kind of a, kind of a bank card nerd, to be honest with you. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Well, um, yeah, as one fellow nerd to another, I can appreciate that. So, um, so, okay. <laughs> yeah. So last question for you and this really kind of goes to the heart of you know my belief about trying to build a team of experienced reps there there's this moment that i think very few iso execs actually understand that's happening all the time and what this moment is is that you recruit an experienced rep they go out and they you know they're selling anyway they're going to go sell 10 merchants next month whether they're with you or not so they go to make that next mm-hmm. sale, right? And they they realize that they, they're about to get a yes. They give them a proposal or whatever it is. Now the merchant's like, yeah, I think I'm going to move forward. That moment right there, they have this decision to make. So the, the one path they could take is, I've been with this other company for four or five years. I know their application inside and out. I know how their underwriting process works. I know I'm going to get paid. I know I'm going to get my residual reporting. There's very few unknowns there, and they know they could pull that application out, and they could get it signed and get paid, and and that all works. The other path is, well, there's this new company. I really liked this Eric guy. He and I, you know, we built a little bit of rapport on the phone. I've never seen him before, but we built some good rapport. I like what he said but I've never used Sundance before. 
you know, it's very difficult a lot of times to get them to say, no, I'm not going to pull out my, you know, my existing app. I'm going to I'm going to make sure I have even having the app with me from the you know, Sundance or from the new company or whatever, you know, and then I understand it enough to go through it. So talk to me a little bit about, OK, you got them to put a few deals with you, but now they're only putting maybe one or two deals with you because every month they have a few merchants that are not a good fit for their main provider how do you say, okay, we want to go from being the you know afterthought where we're getting one or two deals a month and our competitor is getting eight. How do we get all 10? How do we really get them to have that comfort level of like, okay, cool, I want to place all my deals with you instead of just a couple? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. And it's uh, and there's no obviously magical answer for that. Sure. But um, what, I, what, I, what I've experienced is getting those first couple of deals and building that trust. Uh, I think that starts there and really making sure you follow through with your word. They make sure the residual reports are correct. Um, and cause they got it's, it's a, it's a new relationship of trying this out, which obviously we're going to make sure we're, we are who we say we are. And we're going to provide what we say we have. Once we get to a point, I've had partners that even told me this after about three, four months after they felt comfortable and things were kind of going correctly and things aren't perfect. I mean, there might be a customer service or a tech sure, issue. Something happens with the terminal, you know, how terminal, these terminals are. I, but I think as far as, I think what partners are looking for is, how how do they handle these problems? How, how quickly exactly. do they take care of it? And we won a lot of business um, because of our customer service that we're finding the back end, uh, how swiftly we react to getting a new piece of equipment out to a merchant. Um, I've had I've had a lot of sales partners from come over from some organizations where it's taken them a week, week and a half, and that's turned them off. Uh, and then when they come to me, uh, we can get these terminals out overnight. Uh, program basically uh, up and running the next day. Something goes wrong, we get it out, and we overnight it as well as again to the mer to, to the merchant make sure they're active, um, and really just developing the, developing the relationship over over time. Being a matter of being a person of my word, keeping our promises, because sure. uh, once we start seeing, I think once they kind of experience the Sundance experience and have seen that we're partner centric once we have an agent writing four or five deals a month we tend to get the majority of their business and i have partners tell me hey we're sending yeah we have other partnerships with other isos and we're sending a couple deals here and there because there's not a good fit uh but you're getting the majority of your business and uh and it really is because you guys are the follow-through you guys are on top of it we're talking to to you on a daily basis you're you're actually taking care of these problems on uh, uh, in a in a swift fashion so i think we're 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 winning the business and we're getting more of the business. Really, just it's the follow through and the promises that we've told them and set the expectations that we were going to do for them, and, and really just following through on and just doing our job. Yeah, yeah, uh, and doing what we say we're going to do, and and the proofs in the pudding. Um, merchants are happy, agents are happy, getting their accounts approved in a in a swift manner, and. Um, I think that's kind of where we're kind of at the point now is we're seeing with reps that we have is we're starting, we've gained more of their business just for the simple fact that we just keep our word. We're doing our job. We're doing what we're supposed to do yeah. and we don't make excuses. Yeah. So um, it sounds like, it's not like what you're saying is it's not, it, it's not like an overnight thing. It's like you're, you're building that trust and building that relationship and basically proving, oh, yeah. proving to them over time that you can deliver. So long. Absolutely. I mean, even if it's an agent that's a partner that sends in two, three deals a month, hey, we treat them the same as somebody getting 20 deals a month. It's it's about building relationships, rapport, uh, being human with people, and really trying to show, trying to really try to help people when it comes down to it, because that's when it comes down to we're in the people business. And our, our job is to make people, uh, make, hey, put, help them provide 
help the entrepreneurs be successful out there and doing what we need to do on our part. And if we do that correctly, uh, I, I, we'll earn their business over time. I'm confident with it. You know, one thing you said that I really love is that you treat the agent the same if they do two or three if the, or if they do 20. And I think that's so crucial because, you know, one thing that it's easy to forget is that, you know, a, an experienced bank card rep, it's actually really unlikely that they're only doing two deals a month. In other words, how are they paying the bills? How are they surviving unless they've got yeah. a really big residual, mm -hmm. right? Like just because you're only getting two deals a month, that doesn't mean that that's all they're doing. And I think it's easy for an ISO to look at that and go, ah, this rep, they're only doing one, two, three deals a month. You know, we're not really that concerned mm -hmm. about them. We're focused on this other rep. But it's like, well, wait a second. What if that rep's actually doing 12 to 15 a month? But it's just that you're only getting two, and the reason you're only getting two is because they haven't been wowed by your level of service and support, right? Exactly. I mean, it's uh, and I've and I, and I have those candid conversations with partners. I mean, uh, obviously, if you're making a living and you're successful in the business, I mean, I, you should diversify. Right. Uh, let's be honest. Right. Um, but uh, at the same time, if they're wowed by our services, I mean, in they like the way we do business. I mean, sometimes it's all about just how you treat people as I come back, as I come back, sure. as I said earlier. And if you treat them well, you take care of them. I mean, I think uh, they're going to want to go out there and work for and, and help you write business and help you build your business as well. So yeah. um, I'm just fortunate to, to be able to talk to, to, to help people out on a daily basis. I mean, uh, I love helping people to begin with. So just having that opportunity. I just I'm grateful for it, and if I can help somebody get a couple deals here and there, and they're happy, and the merchants are happy, hey, great, I'm happy. Sure, yeah, I love it. Well, you know, I think we could keep talking about this for like an hour, Eric, because this is such a big topic. Oh um, yeah, we could. Yeah, <laughs> we definitely could. So, really interesting stuff. I really appreciate <laughs> it. Let Let me ask you this though, before we let you go. So, I'm sure a lot of our listeners, maybe they're experienced reps, maybe they're small ISOs, they want to learn more about you. They want to learn more about Sundance. Where would you send them? Yeah, so you. you Feel free to log on to our website at www.sundancepayment.com. Uh, you can also follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter. Uh, if you want to call in and have a conversation, uh, feel free to give us a call at 844-350-8335. Uh, feel free to reach out to me on LinkedIn as well. Um, uh, if you have any general questions, I love uh, just talking bank card business. Uh, like I said, I'm a bank card nerd, so uh, it's kind of probably one of my passions. That's probably I love what I do. So for sure. me, it's not a, it's not a job. It's a, it's a career and a passion for mine. So, um, but yeah, feel free to just uh, follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, or Facebook and visit our website, uh, SundancePayment.com. Awesome. So that is Sundance Payment, just like it sounds and payment is singular, SundancePayment.com, right? Or look up uh, Eric, yes, Mar or look up Eric Martinez, E-R-I-K Martinez on, uh, on LinkedIn there. So Eric, man, thank you so much for your time today and your expertise. I really appreciate you sharing that with our listeners. This is the Insider's Report with Patty Murphy, brought to you by The Green Sheet. For the past 36 years, The Green Sheet has been the go-to source for news, analysis, and educational tools that empower and connect payments professionals. If you're not reading The Green Sheet already, check it out on the web today at greensheet.com. interesting uh, headline that recently came across my desk from J.D. Power. It posits that mobile payments are hot, but Americans aren't ready to go cashless yet. 
the JD Power data suggests cashless payments generally and mobile payments in particular are a happening thing in hip urban areas, but for most of the country, it's business as usual. A whopping 78% of consumers queried said they believe stores and restaurants should be required to accept cash. Wow, that's a lot. That's a lot. I, I have to be honest. It's actually not even as high as I thought it would be, though. No. 22% said that they thought it was okay for, for stores to be cashless. cashless. Yeah. That's which, interesting. Which I think is interesting. And again, it could be more of the urban areas, you know. Yeah, but, mm, that's interesting. But uh, And in a related news, uh, a ban on cashless stores took effect in Philadelphia on ah. October 1st. Okay. Proponents of the ban have argu argued successfully that cashless stores disproportionately impact low-income shoppers. Um, and Philly is the first major city to ban, well, I shouldn't mm, say that. Wasn't it, it? It, it? Boston did it years ago. Okay. Boston right. did it like back in the late 70s. Okay. But under this current... Uh, right, the new wave. New wave of, yeah, of sure. discontent. It's the first. Uh, D.C., New York, San Francisco, a few places have considered it but haven't passed haven't it. Haven't passed it yet. Okay. Okay. So, um, but back to the J.D. Power data. 82% uh, of those surveyed typically carry cash, and that included 78% of 18 to 29-year-olds. 20% of uh, consumers have $50 or more on hand at any given time. And 67% had used cash to ma make a purchase during the previous week. Hmm. Among 18 to 29-year-olds, and this surprised me, it was 78%. Really? Yeah. You know. Well, you know what? I think that's probably, I wonder if that's a function of 18 to 29-year-olds also be the lower income bracket. Well, that's what I was thinking. Like, they yeah. don't have the cards yet. Right. Right? Right. They might have a prepaid debit card right. or something right. like Definitely that. Definitely. I, I bet if you looked at 20 three-year-olds to 29-year-olds, I bet it would be a lower... Or if you looked at, like, 25 to 45. Right, exactly. Right? Yeah, I feel like it's, yeah, I feel like it's the... It's you know, that it's, 18, it's 18, to, it's 22. That 18 to 22 yeah, because... Yeah, don't have that option. Right, I mean, you're not getting credit cards in college like you did back in the 70s, right? Right, right. So, um, but yeah. still, you know, and it shows that, you know, cash is, uh, you know, still, still king, so to speak. Um, but it's not being held to the uh, exclusion of non-cash transactions. For example, 61% of those surveyed uh, have u had used a debit card in the previous week. Sure. 54% said they had used a credit card. But just 20% re reported using mobile devices or smartwatches to make payments. Yeah, that number sounds about right to me. That's, that's about and again, I, I think, be. you know, again, like you, you and I are in more rural areas right. where it's not as right. common. Sure. Although I'm surprised every I'm once in a while. It. Yeah, I'm starting to see yeah. it. We, um, I yeah. live right near I-70, mm -hmm. and I go to a gas station there you see a lot of people sure using the because phone. they're coming off the highway right right sure um but uh you know there are also some specific data points um that are related to mobile payments that i wanted to share and this came from the online data portal statista okay they collect data from all different all sources, over the place sure. and they do some of their own research but mostly it comes from other sources um they said that um 65 percent of american smartphone owners say they are reluctant to try out mobile wallets due to security concerns. <laughs> That's so funny when it's like clear. To me, it's just, it's just funny. I mean, to me, I'm reluctant to use it because... I don't really see the point. Well, that's sort of my thing. Because I mean, from a security perspective, from a security it's perspective, fine. they're already, you know, all your stuff is in your phone no, anyway. Yeah, right? I don't really understand that. But uh, 
27% said they don't use mobile payments because they're afraid of losing their phones. And then that would be me. I can't tell you how many times I misplaced my phone. I guess, but then to me... But you're not losing your money, right? Well, what I'm saying is if your phone is... Oh, I see. I guess, are they maybe they're saying that then they wouldn't have a form of payment exactly, to use? Exactly. I mean, to me, it's like carry your your cards with you. You're just using or carry your, some loose change in your, you know, some bills in that, your. Uh, that pocket. actually is. I have to say, that's what I hadn't really thought of. I mean, I guess that is interesting. It's basically getting to the point where losing your phone is becoming more and more of a catastrophe. Well, it comes <laughs> becomes more and more of a catastrophe as it becomes your wallet. Well, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah I, I hadn't thought about that before because for me, I would never. I can't imagine using my phone. I could see using my phone for payment, but not to the exclusion of having my wallet. Exactly. Same here. So I would still have both, I guess. And and I you know, and I can't imagine that you're fearful that by that your you know, your banking credentials are gonna be compromised because presumably right. you have some sort of encryption. Right. Yeah, or that's something. what I'm saying. You have a password on your phone. Right. So, yeah. so it's not like somebody else is gonna go use it. Um but uh twenty nine percent of consumers would like to use their smartphones to make payments all the time. So three out of ten. Sure. Um, again, that's probably generational. Right. So here's a, just a few more mo- uh, data points on mo- mobile payments that I wanted to share. Sure. Um, PayPal's annual mobile payment volume in 2018 was $227 billion. PayPal's annual mobile payment volume. What does that mean? That means the money that was sent from PayPal to somewhere using a mobile yeah, wallet? Yeah, like your Venmo. Got or, it. You know, okay, PayPal so this could be Venmo. P2P type stuff right. too. Okay, I got okay. it. All right. P2P or... That's you know, I actually didn't know they were that big. Small. I didn't either. I was I quite mean, surprised I by that. I mean, they were big. I didn't realize they were that big. That's and huge. to put that in perspective, that is twice the total card purchase volume processed by the top eight acquirers <laughs> in 2017, according to Nielsen wow. Research, which, you know, keeps tabs on that sure. kind of stuff. Um. And here, so I, you know, when I saw that, I found that on Statista, and so I thought, okay, what about Apple Pay? Right. Right? So, you know, and again, Apple Pay uh, was first introduced in 2015, which pretty much opened the door to this. Um, And according to Payments.com, Apple Pay transaction volume has increased eightfold in the last four years. From one dollar to eight dollars, right? <laughs> I know, that's what I thought. I went. That's exactly uh, where I went at first. But um, uh, this year, Apple Pay spending is expected to reach six seven hundred and sixty-eight billion. Seriously? Yeah. Now, that can't be just now, in the hold U.S. On. Is right? It, well, y- no, I wouldn't think. But then also, are we talking here broadly about Apple Pay? Meaning, what about in the App Store? Right, like, are we talking about for apps as well as for P two P? Are is well it though? I don't know. I wonder if that is. I don't think we would know that because, like, I don't know if they're saying, you know, is it, is it, is that mean all the money that Apple transacted through their Apple Pay app and their App Store and everything else? Because then, like, yeah, of course. Well, then if it's their me. App Store and everything else, yeah, I see what right? you're saying. Or right. is that saying people took out the Apple Pay app and paid for something not with Apple? Mm-hmm. But paid for something at a different business, right? If that's seven hundred sixty-eight billion, that's pretty. That's, that's pretty hefty, actually. Yeah. yeah, that's like you know, uh, three times what uh, PayPal was seeing. And I mean, also, I so guess, I guess maybe that maybe it's the app stuff. No, I don't know. There. I don't know now because you said that it, it increased eightfold, right? So that's saying that it was like a hundred billion four years ago, and now it's seven, and now it's almost eight hundred billion. Right. The app store would not account for that, like that kind of growth. So yeah. 
yeah, maybe that's a internationally. I think it's definitely think it's an international. Yeah, figure. but still, that's but still, that's, that's close to a trillion dollars. That's like three quarters of a trillion dollars. That's a ton. Yeah. Huh. Wow. Okay. All right. So I'm, I'm surprised you know, even that's if you only have, um, you know, people using twenty percent of people using their smartphones. Yeah. Right. There's if you and put Apple and and PayPal together, it's close to a trillion dollars. Yeah, and I think it's interesting too because to me it just goes to. Again, bringing down rubber meets the road, you know, as an individual sales agent out in the field talking about this stuff. I mean, I would definitely be using that and, and asking business owners, hey, is your is your POS system set up to accept mm -hmm. um, Apple Pay? Did you realize that last year Apple Pay was $768 billion? Right. So people are wanting to use Apple Pay, but they're not seeing that sign in your store. And they're not spending it here. And they're not spending it here. Yeah. And so, you know, maybe, of course, they might still pull out another form of payment, but these are customers that are going to enjoy that convenience, and they get a rush out of using their phone. They and look they look cool the when they do it. people who do it do think yeah. it's cool. They think, and they, they I've think been with cool, people who use and it. And they think they look cool doing exactly. it. Exactly. And people like to look cool. Exactly. And especially younger people. Yeah. So yeah. I think your store definitely is at a point where, if you're, and I mean, I believe this two years ago, even when Apple Pay, at the very, very beginning, I you know, it's funny, for the whole time I've always said Apple Pay is inconsequential, mm -hmm. but absolutely essential, essential for the business owner to accept it. Just because yes. of the status. Now it starts to look like, well, maybe it's starting to get a little bit substantial here. Well, and you know, so. I, I remember, you know, oh, probably five or six months ago, you did mm -hmm. a little, one of the questions from the field thing was, oh, how to sell it. How to sell, <laughs> yeah, that's right. You know, mobile payment. Yeah. Pull out your Apple and say, hey, do you take this? Do do I this. mean, yep. I think that Yep. When I was writing this up, I kind of that was in the back yeah, of my now head. Now that you have that data point, now that mm -hmm. that strategy I talked about becomes even more powerful. Right. Pull your phone out and say, "I want can I pay with my Apple Pay?" And they're like, "No, we don't accept that." Well, did you know that Apple Pay did 768 billion dollars last year? Uh-huh. So, yeah. 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 Good stuff, Patty. Very interesting. Thanks, James. This is Questions from the Field, brought to you by instantquotetool.com. With over 30 training courses covering everything from sales objections to statement analysis, ISOs are using our learning management system to help new agents understand the industry and how to sell merchant services. Industry veterans love our courses because we dive deeper into concepts such as interchange and explore new industry trends like cash discounting, NFC, and the resurgence of American Express with the OptiBlue program. Put all of these training courses together with the leading proposal creation tool for merchant services agents in the field, and we believe our branded ISO solution and individual user package is a must-have. Visit instantquotetool.com today or email support at instantquotetool.com to learn more. So, Patty, we've been doing this series on how to manage a merchant sales team. Mm -hmm. uh, so we talked about the three keys, which are recruit, train, activate. So we talked about if you recruit the right people, if you train them effectively, and then if you can get them to take action and focus on that effort initially, you're going to get sales. And then we talked about last week with this activation, the idea of having those minimum expectations where... You know, people are not going to be on your team if they don't meet these minimum expectations. Right. So that way right. it saves you all these difficult conversations and negotiating whether or not you're going to fire somebody, which is a brutal process. And mm -hmm. instead, you have processes and procedures and you have, hey, this is our standard. You have to meet it to stay here so you have legitimate minimums. Right. Now, 
while I really do enjoy talking about that, um, I would have to say the part of activation I enjoy talking about the most um, is actually how do we then get our top performers to be top performers? Right. Right? Sure. So hopefully throughout this process, we're not focused very much on the people who are just eking by and hitting the minimums, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Once they get on taking the effort and you're focused on effort for two, three, four weeks, then they start moving into results and then they have that full pipeline because they've taken all this action. Sure. Now you're ready to, they're ready to close deals. So- how do you manage a team in order to really kind of maximize performance and get your top producers to do a great job? I really believe the first step is a mental step where you have to understand and accept sales top performers, who they are and what they're all about. And what makes them, right? I mean, not what makes them who tick. they are, but what makes them tick. Yes. Right. So let's talk about top performing salespeople. Let me tell you a few things about top performing salespeople that you may not have understood, or maybe at the very least, you may not have accepted. You don't. You think it's an optional thing. Okay. Mm-hmm. Number one, all top performing salespeople are a pain. <laughs> so, okay, That's true. It's not a solvable problem. It's just their personality. That's what makes it, them so good. It's an opportunity for acceptance. Right. 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 Now. Because all top sales performers are a pain, and believe me, if you manage a sales team, when I said that, you weren't surprised. You were like, well, yeah, I have these two people, and I wish I could strangle them, but except they bring in 20% of our sales. Mm -hmm. But Mm -hmm. they're always wanting an exception. They always want something different. They always want me to do something that's out of the ordinary or whatever. Now, let's talk and understand a little bit about, you know, how to handle that, okay? It's really very, very simple. The first step in handling it is to stop trying to be fair. Yeah. Okay? Right. This is not, a good sales team is not based on a communist idea. Okay? (laughs) Right. You treat your top performers better. Not the same. When did all the sales managers and company executives decide that for the benefit of HR, it was a good idea to treat everybody equally? No. Not in the sales culture. No. And really not in any culture, in my opinion. You treat people based on their performance and they get compensated accordingly. So unless your sales team has unionized, it's time to recognize your top performers and give them what they want. Mm -hmm. So here's what happens. And again, this is funny for me because I have been in so many different situations. I mean, I can't even count all the number of sales teams. I mean, my my very my my previous life, I call it, you know, in corporate world, I was the sales manager. I was brought into three different branches where one of them, sexual harassment, they had to fire the sales manager, and I came in that day to take over there. Uh Another one, I came in because they had a whole territory that they had never been successful at marketing, and they brought me in and basically said, good luck, (laughs) you know? So, you know, then my first one was we were top performing sales team. We were doing three times. We had 30 reps doing three times the average for that region. Then I get into merchant services and I've done work with hundreds of sales teams. So for me, I see this play out so often. It's so predictable. Here's what happens. Okay. Your top, you, you have all these salespeople. You've got 15 salespeople, right? And out of these 15 salespeople, three of them are amazing. Five of them are okay, and the other seven are terrible. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So what happens is your top three reps, well, the first thing that happens is you implement a new process of accountability. Okay. Everybody needs to go out and walk into 20 businesses a day, right? Or, and it's a good thing usually, right? Or we have this new form that everybody's going to use to track their activity. Or we have a new CRM solution and you're required to input everything in there. Uh Uh-huh. Right? Right. Now, everybody hates this. 
all 15. Nobody likes it, right? Mm -hmm. Now, what happens is that the three people hate it the most. The top performers hate it the most. Of course. Because they already know what they're doing, and they're already good at it. So they come to you and say, I don't want to do this. I don't want to update to CRM. I think this is crap, right? Mm -hmm. Then everybody else is saying the same thing. And so you say, well, we have to be fair. So everybody <laughs> has to use it. Let me, can I please, can I please free you from that idea for just a second? No, you don't have to be fair. Right. Tell your top three performers to do whatever they want. Yeah, as long as they're performing. Like, seriously, they right. don't want to update the CRM? Hire a secretary to do it for them. Right. Or just say, don't worry about it. Then the people that are your lower performers that say, well, you're not, Susan doesn't have to update the CRM. Why do I have to update it? Because Susan sells more than you do. Mm -hmm. That's it. No further explanation necessary. Coffee is for closers. Like, seriously, what happened to sales culture here, people? When you have somebody that's not performing and they want you to make the same exception for them that you're making for your top performer, you say no. I made this accountability for reps like you that aren't selling as much as these reps mm -hmm. because I know that if I hold you accountable, my goal is to get you up to that level. Right. All of these rules and procedures, this CRM is all to help you to get to the level that those reps are at. Sure. They're already at a successful level. They're doing great. I don't care if I make an exception for them because they're performing at a higher level. I'm trying to help you to get to their level. Mm -hmm. Follow my system. And once you get to that level, I'll let you stop using the CRM too if you don't want to. Sure. Right? Sure, right. But here's what happened. That that what I just described, uh -huh. that conversation never 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 happens. Mm. Instead the conversation is you're right. Billy, you're right. I know you suck and these people over here are doing amazing, but I certainly don't want to be unfair. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to make the top salespeople do something they hate so they'll leave me and go to one of my competitors so I can spend all my time working with you who doesn't know how to sell. Right. No. Let's take the top performers and let's treat them like top performers. Mm -hmm. Make them an exclusive club. Now, I'm getting all fired up about this. So one more thing before I, I end this one, okay? He is getting fired I up, really by the way. Am. Patty can tell. I really am. I, I get so frustrated. <laughs> I'm telling you, Patty, you can't even imagine. I go to these cultures and I talk to the top salespeople. They're like, James, we want you to have lunch with our top three salespeople. And when I talk to these three salespeople, I'm like, What's holding you back from getting to the next level? And you know what they always say? Too much paperwork? Yes. Yep. Too much paperwork. Too much admin. I have too many meetings. Blah, blah, blah. Let me, let me give you a real life example. Remember a few weeks ago, I talked about my friend Josh Bryan, mm -hmm. a multimillionaire. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I'm a low level. This is like I'm 22 years old. Right. I'm a salesman. I'm a field sales manager at one branch. Okay. Right. With 30 salespeople. I'm not like way up on the totem pole here. Mm -hmm. The company comes out with this edict of two things. Number one, you have to have a daily sales meeting. Right. Oh. Number two, you have to use this phone with breadcrumbs where it's a, it was an old. This is a long time ago. This is like 15 years ago. Cell phone where when you get to it, it was door to door sales, consumer door to door. OK. You have to push like a number one if they weren't home and number two if you talked and they weren't interested. Oh. Number three if they were. OK. So this was a company wide edict. Right. Oh. So this guy, Josh Ryan, now he's selling about four times the average revenue weekly. He's like literally four reps in one person. Uh huh. So he comes to me and he's like, I don't want to do this. And I said, then don't. He's like, okay. And I said, as far as the sales meeting, and he actually liked the sales meetings of kind of like the talking about sales and stuff, but we'd also do kind of a lot of admin stuff. So I would do the sales part first that he liked. Uh -huh. And, and then, then he, could bolt. he could bolt. He right. could head out, right? Right. So then we have these calls. And then I get a call from my regional manager. Uh -huh. Hey, three of your reps are not using the phone system. 
I said, right. Yeah, I know that. That's my fault. I told them they didn't have to because they're amazing, um, and they, they don't want to do it. <laughs> you know, you can imagine how that went oh, over, I right? Bet, right? No, 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 James. This is a company policy. Okay, hey, I hear what you're saying. Okay, and they're like, all right, next week. These three people are still not they're using not their phone, it, right? And I said, that's totally my fault. I told them they didn't have to because they don't want to, and they're amazing. And you know, I figured we're not going to fire them. Let's just keep them rolling. They're doing a good job, right? You know, well, no, right. we have to be fair to everybody. No, we don't actually. <laughs> and you know, and I mean, I'm how telling many you, weeks did this go on? <laughs> years. Oh, wow. And I never capitulated. Good. And it got to a point where they said, if you don't do, and we got to a point where there's a lot of piled up things. Uh-huh. You know, these three, four, five, six reps out of 30 are not doing all these things. And it's like, and I eventually got to the point where I'd take it to zero, which is the best negotiating strategy. And I said, look, if you are asking me to hamper the ability of my top performers to do their job, I can't do my job. Right. So I'm not going to work in a culture where I can't treat my top performers better than I treat everybody else that's selling mm-hmm. because they're not top performers. Mm-hmm. This is a sales culture. Right. You know, and we had very heated arguments about it and I was very passionate about it and I really would have quit. Like, I'm not going to do that because these are top salespeople and so you treat them that way. Of course. Right. right. Okay. So we talked about this idea of kind of clearing their plate. One other idea I want to give you about this that is just as important. Spend your time with your average to top performers. Mm -hmm. Most sales managers spend 80% of their time trying to keep people from getting fired. Yeah. There is literally nothing worse that you could do with your time than that. Yep. Let me tell you what you do with people that are about to get fired. Fire them. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Or bring them in and say, I'm going to have one meeting with you this month. Mm -hmm. And the meeting is... I want to make sure you remember the policies we set in place for the minimum expectations because you're getting very close to falling below them. And if you do, you are going to be terminated. Let me tell you something about lower performers. They're not lower performers because they don't because of some help that you need to provide them. Right. Well, I say that. I mean, I'm assuming you recruited the right person and you trained them correctly, mm-hmm. which is what we already talked about. Now we're in the activation stage. You recruited the right person, you trained them. The reason that they're not performing is because they're lazy and they're not motivated. Right. That's it. Yeah. That's what it is. You can beat your head against the wall all day long, but they're lazy and they're not focused. Like they're they're not in a place right now, a mental place to do this. They probably hate the job. Mm-hmm. So there's no, you're not going to do very much to help with that situation. No. Now, what's a lot easier is I would rather take somebody that's doing five sales a month and get them to 10 or mm-hmm. take somebody doing 10 sales a month to get them to 15. Right. You're going to spend less effort helping them to figure out how can I enable you? Can I hire you an assistant? Do we need a new technology here? What do sure. you need? And like serve them. Mm-hmm. You know, serving them, like that's your goal. What do I have to do to help you get to that next level? Mm-hmm. Right? So, top salespeople, how do we get them to be at the top? Number one, stop trying to be fair. Understand that top salespeople are a pain to deal with. So you can either deal with it or you can deal with underperformers that don't make sales. Mm-hmm. That's your choice. There's no, there is no in the middle. There is no perfect world where you get all these top salespeople that love all the policies and procedures and paperwork that you have. That mm-hmm. world does not exist. That's, not, yeah, That's a fantasy. Yeah. So get your top people in. Treat them like top people. Right. Clear their plate of all the crap they don't want to deal with. Mm-hmm. Then, lastly... Spend your time with the top performers. And I mean, I'm talking about I clearly communicated this. Lower performers would be like, hey, I would love for you to go out in the field with me. You know, so I, and I'm like, look, I already went out in the field with you as part of the certification process, mm-hmm. right? You've got to hit your minimum expectations. Now, once you get up to, you know, doing X, this number, my goal is I want you to be super successful. Mm-hmm. I am not interested in helping you barely keep your job. Right. That's up to you. 
Right. What I'm interested in is taking people that are already like doing the work and being marginally successful mm -hmm. and blowing the roof off and making you massively successful. That's my job as a sales manager. And that, and that's the best thing you can do for them. It is. Yeah. Because the truth is, they may not be cut out for this. Mm -hmm. So you can help them limp along for three or four months, but eventually they're going to quit right. or they're just going to be miserable. Right. Let them find a job where they're really good at it or let them realize, wait a second, I just need to kick myself in the pants. I got to get motivated. I got to focus in here and I got to keep my job. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden, once they, but they have to make that move. I know it's sad because like you're, you're like, hey, James, I'm a super nice person. I couldn't be like that. No, no. You, you, you are you being understand. nice when you do that, don't you? You are, because right? it's up to them. They have to make the first move. They exactly. have to make that move of motivation. Right. Once they're motivated, boom, then you move forward. And what I will do with people like that is I will give them required rating. Mm -hmm. I'll give them a Brian Tracy book that'll just, psh, every morning I'll say, hey, first thing you do, everybody else is going out in the field, you're going to sit here and listen to this audiobook for an hour. Mm -hmm. And you're going to do that every day. And Brian Tracy's telling him, be successful. Go, you know, like, you know, yeah, I'll do something like that. Mm -hmm. But that's, that's not my time. That's my resources. I'm putting right. my time with my top performers. And what happens is it's, it's hard to describe in like a 15-minute monologue. But what happens, Patty, is it changes the culture of the sales team. People see you out celebrating with the top reps. And they want to be part they of that. They want to be a top rep. They see the top reps getting treated better, getting treated differently, getting paid more. They see you with the top reps, and you're out there, and you're loving it, and you're excited, and you're coming back telling sales stories. Mm -hmm. We went into this merchant location. They said no as soon as we walked in the door. We were both of us back and forth, and we sold them. We signed them up. And they're like, that's amazing. Like, right. that is, those are the stories and the experiences that your bottom salespeople People need to hear you talking about. Yeah, no negativity. I that was one of my rules as a sales manager. The amount of negativity I allowed in my sales team was zero. Mm -hmm. Zero. No negativity. I don't spend my day working with people that are about to lose their job. I spend my day with people that are killing it, that are making a fortune, right. and help them make even more money. Mm -hmm. We're success. We're talking about positivity, and then everybody wants to be a part of that. Right. And the more money they make, the more money the company makes. Absolutely. Yeah. That's how you build a high performance sales team. Excellent, James. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Merchant Sales Podcast. Whether you are an industry veteran, processing executive, or just trying to learn about the payment space, we appreciate your time. The Merchant Sales Podcast is a joint production from greensheet.com and ccsalespro.com. We hope you will tune in next week for more information and tips on building your merchant services business.